What's it going to do to me? The answer is it depends on your health. If you got more body fat, you are at much greater risk. In a French study, they noticed that people who had a body mass index in the healthy range not very likely to have severe illness. People who had a body mass index in the really high range seven times more likely to end up on a ventilator. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. COVID-19 is firmly once again in the spotlight after President Donald Trump and many others inside the White House tested positive for the virus. So on the show today, we will be hitting the reset button on COVID-19, what we know, who was most at risk, what can be done to lower the chances of becoming severely infected, to that end, what is the connection then with your diet? And we'll also hear where we are right now in the pandemic and also where experts believe we will head in the coming months. To help us bring everything back into focus today, Dr. Neil Barnard is here. And you're going to hear him talk about the things that all of us do every day that can increase the risk for spreading the coronavirus. But also, we'll be taking a look at the measures that can be taken to reduce our risk of becoming severely infected if we are exposed to the virus. The steps that we can take right now, and a big part of that is going down into the kitchen, into your pantry, and getting rid of the foods that are unhealthy. Because you will hear Dr. Barnard talk about why, right now, it can be so important to lose those extra pounds. You're going to hear the latest research on why COVID-19 attacks people who are obese with such ferocity. And then you'll hear why a vegan diet may prove to be so beneficial right now during this pandemic. And Dr. Barnard is also going to be sticking around to answer listener questions, your questions about the coronavirus, questions about everything from alcohol and how that may impact the risk to how long the virus can actually hang in the air. We'll also be talking about masks and what the latest research shows on the possibility that someone can become infected for a second time. And of course, we will also be talking about the effects that live animal markets can have on this pandemic. And what are the odds that another pandemic, because of these animal markets, is just on the horizon? Really, the goal of the show today is to review the facts as we know them. Revisit the current trends and how the virus is expected to spread as we head into the colder months. Who was most at risk and what can be done to help? And what can we do to help protect ourselves? Well, for all of those answers and more, hear now my conversation 
with Dr. Barnard. Dr. Barnard, let's go ahead and get started here and set the table by just kind of recapping how this virus spreads, what we know about it. There's been a lot of talk about uh, exactly how it does spread recently. Some controversy still there. So what do we know? Yeah, the, the never-ending controversy is how is it spread? Um, is it spread uh, through uh, droplets, through aerosols? And if so, will wearing a mask help? Is wearing a mask a waste of time? Um, and then what actually happens? Who is most vulnerable to it? So let's go get back to the basics. Uh, let's say you've got this virus and it comes out of your mouth in an aerosol because you coughed or you sneezed. And the air, I, I'm sorry, this, th- we're going to call this a droplet. And a droplet is not big, but it's big enough that gravity pulls it to the ground. But that's a droplet. And I'm going to use the word aerosol for a smaller little, little, little chunk of virus that can be airborne for a substantial period of time. So the droplets, they fall to the ground, the aerosols go wisping around in the air for a while. Now, it doesn't seem like a big difference, does it? But to people who are concerned about how this virus is spread, it's all the difference in the world because the droplets, that's what spreads a cold. That's what spreads influenza. The aerosols, that's what spreads measles, chickenpox, tuberculosis. And if you get on an elevator, Somebody else just got off. Let's say they coughed or whatever. If it's droplets, all those droplets are on the floor. If it's aerosol, they're in the air and you're breathing them in. So, so it, the distinction is not just epidemic. The distinction is huge. And this goes way back. In 1934, William Wells was a tuberculosis researcher who started looking at droplets versus aerosols and trying to figure out how different uh, uh diseases spread. And it's we found a useful way of telling them apart and figuring, are those aerosol, aerosolized viruses really a danger? Here's what you do. You look for how many people you infect. So let's say it's, it's just droplets, just the big droplets. They, because they hit the ground fairly soon, they don't hit somebody who's 15 feet away or 20 feet away. They hit the person who's right across the the restaurant table from you or the waiter who takes your order or your assistant who comes into your office or something like that. Somebody within six feet, typically. Aerosol, well, if it's aerosolized and if that can be infected, then you can hit people all the way across the room. So what you do is you calculate with any given virus, does an index patient hit a lot of people or relatively few people? And let me share with you the numbers. With measles, One infected person typically can infect about 18 other people. That's a sign that this is an aerosolized virus. It's going all over the place, other people breathing in. With SARS-CoV-2, that's the coronavirus causing COVID-19. It's two and a half. That's still a lot. But what that suggests is that it's probably mostly not aerosolized. It's mostly the droplets that are not hitting lots and lots and lots of people. So this came out in JAMA uh, just a couple of months ago, July 13th. And they said, okay, you could get it through aerosolized uh, uh, particles. That can happen. Probably not the big, the big way, though. Uh, so uh, the Centers for Disease Control and uh, Prevention just a couple of days ago actually 
got everybody uh, concerned because they initially did talk about the aerosolization as being an issue. Then their website was famously revised to take that out. So here's what they say now. It's mostly from person to person. People in close contact within about six feet are those at big risk, and it's the droplets is what they're thinking. And what do the droplets do? They can land in your mouth, in your nose. uh, They can be inhaled and, and so forth, but mostly in close proximity. However, they didn't rule out other possibilities, and that's a contaminated surface. So um, all the things that can be contaminated are of of just as much concern now as they always were. So aerosolization hasn't been ruled out, but probably not the the main way. So let's go to the debate. Uh, The debate occurred, and you're thinking, wait a minute. Um, Could the virus be transmitted uh, actually within that setting? And chance? it, it looks like the podia were more than six feet apart. But researchers have been doing some some work on different environments, not just where people are placed, but what they are doing. Uh, If you're standing there, then the virus is less likely to spread. Once you open your mouth and speak, it is more likely to spread. If you are in a chorus and you are singing and really propelling it out, more likely. If you play the trumpet... Um, if you're, in other words, if the expiration of, of air and viruses is a big part of the interaction, you're at greater risk. So I leave you to decide uh, which of those scenarios were there during the debate. Um, and then that raises the question about masks. Masks have been hugely controversial. This goes back in March. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. It was just, what, a few months ago. But masks were not to be worn. The whole, this was the directive. This is from JAMA. Uh, masks should not be worn by healthy individuals to protect themselves from acquiring the respiratory uh, infection. Uh, 180 soon followed, and uh, now masks are recommended by everybody. Um, and I, I want to bring you back to a, a really troubling statistic, Chuck. This was back in June. At the University of Washington, masks had been recommended. And the forecast was that if people weren't really wearing masks very much, we'd have 179,000 people dead by October 1st. But if people would wear masks, it would be only 146,000. So say 30 plus thousand people. Well, as you know, masks remained very controversial and frankly, neither of those scenarios bore out. Uh, We were at uh, about 200,000, unfortunately. Okay, so then then the the final question just, all right, I've I've got the the virus, uh, probably from droplets, but conceivably from aerosols. What's it going to do to me? And the answer is it depends on your health. Uh, These are fat cells, adipose tissue cells. And adipose tissue has this little ACE2 um, receptor. That's that little Y-shaped thing, the little slingshot-shaped thing. The virus attaches to that ACE2 receptor and then gets sucked into the cell where it can multiply. If you've got more fat cells... If you got more body fat, you are at much greater risk. And we saw this when the virus emerged in China. People who were underweight, very low likelihood of severe illness. People at normal weight, some risk. People who were overweight, more risk. People who were obese, high risk. And then the virus spread to Europe. And uh, in a French study, they noticed that people who had a body mass index in the healthy range, not very likely to have severe illness. 
people who had a body mass index in, in the really high range over 35, seven times more likely to end up on a ventilator. We've seen this here in this country. Our, our doctors who are on the front lines are always talking about how hard it is to get an obese person off the ventilator. Um, and the reason is that fat cells express this ACE2 receptor. It's a welcome mat for uh, COVID-19. And if that wasn't bad enough, fat cells in the lungs themselves, they're called lipofibroblasts, will end up, they change into what are, uh, instead of being nice elastic cells that can allow the lungs to, to expand and contract, they become more fibrotic and stiff. And so the lungs can't do what they're supposed to do. Um, very last thing, Chuck, uh, diabetes. We've talked about this before. Diabetes really puts you at risk. But, but, but it's not just a question of, of do you have diabetes? Mortality is far higher in people with diabetes. But uh, in China, when the virus emerged, it was clear that what mattered more was not if you had diabetes, but if you were in poor control, which gave you 11% mortality, or good control, which knocked it down to 1%. So getting, if you got diabetes, change your diet now. Talk to your doctor. Make sure your medications are up to date. And you have power over this virus that you're not going to have. Um, so does this all this matter? Uh, the CDC came out with numbers back in June looking at people who did not have any kind of underlying condition. Young, uh, healthy hearts, healthy lungs, not obese, uh, pretty low mortality, really, 1.6%. Uh, obviously, you want zero, but 1.6% but, uh, was way better than people with underlying conditions where it was about 20%. Um, what is especially bad is that as you get into your 60s, mortality is higher. Get into your 70s, mortality is higher still. Get into your 80s. Even if you don't have any underlying condition, one in three people is dead from this disease. If you are over 80 and you got to have an underlying condition, 50-50, uh, uh, whether you live or die. So um, what can I do? Um, you can't change the calendar. You can't make yourself younger. But a vegan diet helps weight loss. Uh, this is, these are data from the Adventist studies. The more people get the animal products off their plate, the slimmer they are. Keeping oils really low, natural high-fiber foods, that's going to help you. These things are also going to help you tackle um, diabetes risk as well. So uh, let me turn it back to you, Chuck. You know, I, I want to go back to that number that was forecast uh, early in the pandemic, 179,000 deaths, I do believe it was, uh, were forecast by October 1st. The actual number as of today, October 2nd, is 207,000. So you're talking about a 28,000 uh, death difference there, greater than what was forecast. Um, and so that that is a little bit troubling. Sticking with the trends right now, you and I have spoken previously, Dr. Barnard, about what uh, the flu season and pandemic, how they're going to collide and what uh, forecasters are expecting that will do for the pandemic. Can you bring us up to speed on where we think this is going to head as the months get colder and we stay yeah. inside more frequently? Yeah, um, there, there are there are several things working against us, but a few working for us. What's working against us is the fact that most people have still not been exposed. Um, this is particularly true in the West, uh, less true in, say, the Northeast in New York, where they had the virus so bad that uh, as many as a third of people have been exposed. But it's that large unexposed population that is vulnerable to getting it now. That's working against us. Also working against us is that cold weather brings in other problems. It brings in influenza and other things that weaken our resistance. It also brings in weight gain. Virtually all the weight gain that people have is in this time of year, um, as the days get 
cooler and weight gain is a disaster when it comes to, to COVID. And then because it's cold, people are indoors more. They're also getting COVID fatigue and you see people um, ridicule mask wearing and, and that kind of thing. And they, they just get uh, tired of it, but there are some things working for us. Uh, perhaps some of the most vulnerable people have already gone through their infection with whatever outcome they had. So they're taken out of the, uh, of that equation. Um, there may be a vaccine uh, forecasts that there is going to be one in the next month or two are overly optimistic, but somewhere in the mid uh, 2021s, um, that's reasonably likely. We know more about uh, how drugs work. Uh, we know to cross hydroxychloroquine off the list, but to put remdesivir on the list. So doctors are smarter than where they were before, and the population is too. Um, so where what's the overall mix? Uh, my best estimate is the virus is going to continue. It's going to be aggressive. It's going to be aggressive through the holiday time and well into the next winter. Um, it does mean that we have to protect ourselves, but let your New Year's resolution be a vegan diet and make that resolution on October 1st, not January 1st. A couple of other points before we open up the doctor's mailbag and take your questions. Uh, Dr. Barnard, we spoke a lot about adults and people in their uh, senior years, but let's talk about kids because there's still a lot of confusion surrounding whether or not children are vulnerable to this virus, how susceptible they are to getting it, how susceptible uh, or how likely they are to spread it. Okay. Uh, great, great question, Chuck. Um, children are very susceptible to contracting the virus. Um, once they get it, their disease course is usually very mild. Mortality is extremely low um, in children. That starts to change. Once you look at kids between uh, 18, 19, 20, 21, it starts to creep up, but uh, really only just a little bit. So they're not so likely to have severe symptoms themselves, but what they are likely to do is spread it to other people. Um, and they, kids are immortal or think they are. So they eat in horrendous ways. Uh, it's sometimes hard to keep a mask on them. Um, so uh, their risk is really to the people that they're around. And when teachers and principals and other people working with kids express concern, um, their concerns are well-founded. And you look at the the surge of cases that kind of accompanied the timing of the reopening of college campuses back in August. Um, a lot of experts say, well, there's definitely a correlation between the two there. And lastly, uh, I think that we also need to talk about the the groups uh, who uh, are finding themselves most exposed to the virus. You know, a lot of people say that there is a lot of uh, a racial divide when it comes to COVID-19. What do we know about that as it stands today? That was apparent right from the beginning, and all the data that we've had since then have confirmed that. Um, the virus has been um, not, not, not only more infective, but, but more deadly, much more deadly in, Hispan in the Hispanic population, the Latinx population, and the Black population compared to the white population. Um, and that is, if I may do my best to interpret it, I think for two broad reasons. There are structural reasons. Um, which have to do with access to care, access to testing, access to uh, protective equipment, um, who is able to comfortably work from home versus who is not given that opportunity. These are all structural issues that ha do have to be addressed. Apart from that, there are also medical issues, and that's who has more diabetes and more obesity and that kind of thing. And that's playing a role, too. Um, both of these have to be addressed very, very aggressively. Uh, and, and I think we also have to not get too much into 
to uh, pessimism, that this is the way it has to be. It, it does not have to be this way. The structural issues, they take some doing, but if we resolve to tackle them, we can. And diabetes, yes, it's much more dramatically more common in the Latinx community, in the black community, in the Native American community compared to the white community. But diabetes can be controlled. The, the control can be improved in 48 hours um, if we bring in aggressive medical care and we bring in good nutrition. Um, as time goes on, the, the diabetes can be tackled bit by bit by bit by bit. And that not only reduces your risk of a bad COVID-19 course now if you catch the virus, but it also improves uh, your trajectory far into the future. It makes uh, all the sequelae of uh, diabetes much less likely to strike. So, so there's every reason to put tackling these underlying health concerns as job one in dealing with this virus and dealing with health. And the reason that I'm, that I'm emphasizing this so strongly, Chuck, is that we talk about this. We talk about underlying conditions all the time. But over and over again, I'm hearing health authorities here in Washington, D.C., uh, in every other major center, uh, city and states and in the federal government, what, what, what we hear is just silence when it comes to let's tackle diabetes, let's promote a plant-based diet, let's get diabetes under control or obesity under control. We're not hearing that message. And that message has to come through loud and clear because it's the difference between life and death when COVID-19 arrives for a great many people. And you know what, to that end, let's take a second and actually just give a big tip of the cap to Tracy McWhorter uh, and their 10,000 Black Vegan Women campaign recently reached that goal. This year, she had a, a stated goal of, of getting 10,000 Black women to adopt a plant-based diet. She absolutely hit that uh, this week. And and just what a great time for that. So my, my hat is off to everything that she is doing to help that community out. Yeah, uh, yes, Chuck. And, and what, what also has to be said is that 10,000 women who, who adopt this diet know 100,000 other people um, that they are talking to. And, and each one is a person who is going to be a lifesaver uh, in her own right. So the more that people learn about it, I mean, knowledge is power. And so, yes, Tracy has done a fantastic job in, in getting the word out. And, and every person that she has touched is in turn touching other people. All right, let's open up the doctor's mailbag now. Time to answer some of your questions. And Dr. Barnard, right off of the bat, I want to go to Bettina's question at 1217. A lot of people think that a glass of wine, they just kind of need it to cope here. So Bettina is asking, what about wine drinking? Here in France, people generally drink a glass per day, but do you recommend no wine, no alcohol during this period? Um, well, with regard to COVID-19, I have not seen data suggesting that wine has an effect one way or the other. Uh, where alcohol really plays a role is, first of all, in risk of malignancies. I'm talking breast cancer. Uh, a drink a day uh, does, e e if, even if it's just one drink, if it's every day, it measurably increases breast cancer risk. And that's also true for a number of other forms of the disease, colorectal cancer. Many others are also increased by alcohol. So yeah, a, a drink a day, um, for a lot of people, that fits into their routine, but it does measurably increase cancer risk. So best advice, if you if, if you don't drink, don't start. If you do drink, keep it modest and intermittent. Question from Edith at 1220. How long does the virus live in the air? Will it eventually drop to the floor and remain active? Um, that has been what researchers have been looking at for a long, 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 long time. And when I was talking about the the droplets, those are the, the, the bigger uh uh, clumps of saliva and so forth that a person uh, coughed out 
it doesn't stay in the air. It falls to the floor um, very, very rapidly. The aerosols were the bigger issue. That's a much tinier particle. And the concern was that they wouldn't um, dissipate very quickly and could remain in the air for hours. That seems to be true. Um, And so that's why we have been looking at, do they really cause the disease? And, And despite the fact that aerosolized virus does seem to be able to remain in the air. I keep thinking of the the elevator carriage or uh, you're on a train uh, car with somebody else. Uh, For whatever reason, when we follow the epidemiology, uh, for the most part, it's the droplets that seem to be causing the problem, not so much those aerosolized particles, despite the fact that, yes, they do linger in the air for some hours. A lot of people are wondering right now about wearing masks and whether actually keeping them on for an extended period of time is actually unhealthy because you're breathing back in a lot of the air that you just expelled, maybe not getting as much oxygen as you need. What do we know about wearing a mask for an expend- uh, extended period of time? Well, I mean, it, it does have that effect. If, if you're out for a, uh, for a run, if you're, if you're trying to run a marathon or something like that, it will restrict oxygenation and, and you'll feel it. And that's why you see people sort of doing their chin mask kind of thing where it's actually not doing anything at all. Um, but with regard to protecting you from the virus, the main function of the mask is to contain your exhalation so that if, if you happen to have the virus, you will not be propelling it out to other people. The, the uh, effectiveness is not 100%. Um, and it, it really depends on how tight it is around the nose and around the mouth and so forth. Um, and it can be as low as 50% uh, effective. Nonetheless, we'll take it. Um, most people don't have the virus, but if people decide collectively, let's imagine we do, then wearing masks is going to uh, reduce spread. Uh, there is also some evidence, not as good, but some evidence that it can protect you as the potential recipient of the virus. It can screen some of them out coming in. And once again, it's a question of how tight the fit is. All right. This is a good one from Marta at 1226. She writes, I had COVID in June. Can I get it again in the future? Wow. That, that is the question. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, nobody does yet. Uh, what we've been looking at is a couple of things. Um, do you develop antibodies? You, you had the virus. Um, that's effectively like getting a vaccine. And so with having had the virus or getting a vaccine, you want to see antibodies form. They do form. And so presumably that would mean that you can't get it again. That does not yet appear to be the case. Um, And one part of the reason is not everybody develops a substantial amount of antibodies. Uh, We do blood testing on people after they had the case, as you did. I'm, I'm so glad that you came through it and are hopefully feeling fine. But when we do blood testing, we discover that the antibodies in many of these people are not at a significant level. So you'd be at risk again, very much like, let's say you had the flu last year. Can you get it again? The answer is absolutely. You know, the influenza will infect you every year. Um, and it's, it's really, really a tricky thing. Plus the fact, um, not to be a total downer on this, uh, in the same way that the influenza virus mutates, it changes. Coronaviruses change as well. And do you remember us having programs uh, way back at the beginning saying ban live animal markets? Why did we want to not have bats and ducks and geese and chickens all together in a market? Because the coronavirus comes in, 
in going from one species to another, it mutates. Uh, the process is called reassortment, where viral DNA is combined with, with across a number of different viral particles. And you get a whole new coronavirus, and you've got no immunity to it. So that's that process is ongoing. And yes, it in theory, you should have some immunity because you had it before. But in reality, we do not know that you are protected at all. And that is the same worry that vaccine uh, manufacturers are having. Uh, yes, we can create some uh, vaccines. Yes, you can get some antibodies in your system that hopefully will neutralize the virus. How long is it going to work for? How well will, will it work? That's what the tests are now trying, just trying to sort out. Let's talk about those animal markets and, and revisit that point uh, before we take our final questions here, um, because there had been reports uh, in some areas of the world that they had been shut down. And then, you know, a few weeks, a few months later, we started to hear, well, maybe they're reopening again. But then you always raise the point here on the program that it's not just in some far reaching part of the earth that they have these exotic animal markets. They are literally everywhere across the U.S. as well. Um, yes. Um, although I have to say they're, they, the, the, the real concentration of them is in New York city, um, and around New York state and some other urban areas, particularly in the Northeast. Um, and here I want to say a, a word of sympathy for the, uh, public, uh, officials in these areas because they're terrified of doing the right thing, which is to close those markets down. I mean, that's from a public health standpoint, that's what should happen. And Tony Fauci came out right at the very beginning saying it boggles the mind that we still allow live animal markets to be there. Um, apart from the filth, apart from the cruelty, um, there, there's just no excuse for having them. But um, these are places where viral reassortment happens. But you have uh, people saying, well, for religious reasons or cultural reasons or traditional reasons or economic reasons, we've just got to cram animals together and sell them for money. And my own view is that whatever religious tradition you come from or cultural tradition or culinary tradition or, or, or economic uh, interest or whatever it may be, we have to be resilient. We have to change with the times and nothing like this is worth dying for or killing your neighbor for. And so we have to put them out of business. Um, and so my hope, there is a bill in Albany now that would ban them in the state of New York. And I'm hoping that that bill will be successful because if we don't, you got, you're, you've just got a ticking clock uh, for the next, the next, re the next reassortment, the next virus. In fact, when the coronavirus came out right around New Year's of this past year, um, you, you remember that there was kind of an, I told, I told you so moment of people who were saying the live markets were called out a long time ago. They should have been banned a long time ago. They weren't. Now we've got this coronavirus and there are others right behind it. So we could take action. We could protect ourselves. Yes. Wear your mask. Yes. Eat a healthy diet. Yes. Go vegan. Complete no brainer. But let's also get rid of these darn live animal markets. All right. A couple more quick questions. This one comes to us from Esther. I'm sure she's not alone with this concern. She says, my mother is 81 and she is not overweight, but her cholesterol is a little high. She basically, though, eats a vegetarian diet. What else can she do to keep herself healthy? Um, well, first of all, it sounds like she's been doing some really good things as it is, and she's made some diet changes. Um, if vegetarian means that dairy products are a part of her diet, um, now would be a good time for her to make another step. And that's really get your nutrition entirely from plant sources. Um, that certainly is good for immunity. It's good, good for the 
the gut microbiome. Um, it brings cholesterol down another notch, and it makes respiratory conditions quite. And for many people, uh, it improves them as well. So that would be another good step. All right. Final question comes to us from Vegetron. That's a that's a pretty interesting name. Vegetron uh, says, I take vitamin D daily, which has been shown to help with viral respiratory infections and the immune system. Uh, Dr. Barnard, do we know that, that that is in fact true? What do we know about vitamin D and its effects here? Yeah. Uh, okay. Just real clearly, vitamin D comes from sunlight on your skin. Um, and so if you're getting lots of sunlight on your skin, you've got vitamin D that helps you absorb calcium from the foods you eat. But just as you said, there's some evidence that it can help fight viruses. Uh, will it work for you? Yes and no. Uh, the no part is if you already have plenty of vitamin D in your system because you're getting regular sunlight or whatever, then adding a little more probably is going to do very, very little for you. But uh, where we do see it mattering a lot is in people who are low in vitamin D. Uh, they, are, they do tend to be set up for viral infections. And we know this because they visit the doctor, you measure their blood levels, they're low. And then if those people then will supplement with vitamin D, uh, their immunity can be improved. Uh, how much do you supplement? Most doctors nowadays are, are being a little more generous than the recommended daily allowance would call for. And they're going up to about 2,000 international units of vitamin D per day. I think that's a sensible, uh, a sensible level. All right. Now, no doubt, uh, if we did not get to your question today, we will go ahead and try to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. We do that every single time with the doctor's mailbag. So we appreciate you taking the time to participate. And uh, Dr. Barnard, I know that all of the news, the forecasts, everything that we've been talking about today can just it can be jarring. You know, we kind of settled into this new sense of normal and it just the pandemic became part of our everyday life. But then you have an incident like this and it just kind of brings everything, boom, right back to the forefront. So the good news is, as we've talked about here on the program today, there are certain steps that you can do to at least address those underlying conditions that can turn COVID-19 into the beast that it has become. And one of the things that we've set up is the plant-based immersion Everything that you need to know about adopting a vegan diet, we get you all of that in one day. Matter of fact, we have a plant-based immersion coming up on October 17th. I know that you're going to be participating in that. Uh, you bet. Um, and the, the, the good thing about this is that all the steps that we've talked about, they do no harm whatsoever. They actually only have side effects that are good. So when a person goes on a plant-based diet because they want to be slimmer to help them in, in the face of COVID, or they want to tackle their diabetes. Well, yes, all that's going to happen. But other things happen too. Your cholesterol falls, your skin looks better, your energy is better, your digestion is better. All the side effects are good ones. So I hope people will join us. Lots of expert nutrition presentations from Dr. Barnard and others, uh, including many of the experts that you've seen here on the show. We're talking about Dr. Jasmine Sardana, Dr. Vanita Rahman, uh, Lee Crosby, dietitian, wonderful. Uh, she'll be there talking about diabetes and heart disease, emotional eating. That's another big one during this stressful time, emotional eating. How do you cope with that? You're going to get some tips there. Plus, all right, so you're new to a vegan diet. How do you cook? Well, good news is there's going to be live cooking demonstrations there as well, Dr. Barnard, plus more opportunity for people who register for the class to go ahead and ask questions of the clinicians. It's really a phenomenal course that's set up. So that's coming up on Saturday, October 17th. If you want to register yourself, go ahead and visit pcrm.org slash immersion. Dr. Barnard, thank you so very much for your time today, my friend. Thank you, Chuck.
As I tape this, the number of coronavirus infections in the U.S. is now more than 7.4 million, with 209,000 Americans having lost their lives. And experts believe that that number will climb rapidly if infection rates continue to climb as well. Look, there is no cure for this. And other than practical measures that you've been hearing about for months, there's really nothing that you can do to stop from getting it. But what you heard today is information designed to address the underlying conditions that make COVID-19 so sinister. That's why you heard Dr. Barnard stress that a vegan diet can help with so many of those comorbidities, including weight loss and improving diabetes. And two big keys to each of them, like keeping your oils and your fats low and bulking up on high fiber foods. I mean, load up on that fiber. And if you ever have a question for Dr. Barnard or really any one of our experts that are on the show, you can join us for the exam room live. That is Monday through Friday over on Facebook and on YouTube. We start at noon Eastern and you can find links to both pages in the episode notes, or you can just keep it locked right here to the podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, head over to Apple podcast or wherever you get your favorite shows from subscribe to the exam room podcast by the physicians committee, and please leave a five-star rating because each new subscription and each five-star rating literally helps to make the world a healthier place. Now, we spoke a lot about diabetes on the show today. I wanted to give you one more quick note about it. This study actually crossed the plant-based news desk this week, and it shows that controlling blood sugar can improve brain function among people who have diabetes. These are important findings from LSU researchers who analyzed 1,100 participants from the Look Ahead study, or Action for Health in Diabetes. The new research shows those who were overweight and were able to lower their blood sugar by losing weight and changing their diet while increasing the amount of exercise they performed, that group saw improvements to their ability to think clearly and both learn and retain information. But what researchers were surprised to find was that those who were obese also experienced improvements but not to the same level. What they concluded was, unfortunately, it may be a too little, too late type of scenario for people who have been so overweight for so long. And this study, of course, follows up on others who have come previously that have shown diabetes to have a direct link to both dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And then finally, in other health-related news, it is October as we record this, and we are in the middle of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign, a disease that will affect one out of every eight women in their lifetime. And I would love it if you could join with us in this fight. 
Here at the Physicians Committee, we have identified four steps that you can take to lower your risk of breast cancer. And we call that our four-pronged approach. So think of that, the prongs, kind of like a fork, because we want to stick a fork in breast cancer. So four prongs, four steps that you can take. And you can get going on everything by heading to letsbeatbreastcancer.org and learning the steps. And then once you do, you can take the pledge to follow them. And for doing that, not only will you be improving your health, but you will also receive a free e-cookbook packed with cancer-fighting recipes. Plus, you'll be entered to win a grand prize pack, courtesy of some of our great sponsors. Speaking of which, I want to say thank you to Blankwill, the fine-weighted blankets they have. Thank you to Blankwill for supporting the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. Coming up on the next episode, Dr. Christy Funk, she will be returning to the program as we continue our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series. And this go around, well, here is the big question. What effect might the keto and paleo diets have on the risk of breast cancer? Very popular fad diets right now. So what effect could they have? Well, we'll find out what Dr. Funk has to say on the next episode. Plus, we will also be hearing from a breast cancer survivor who is now 100% plant-based and has been in remission for a quarter century, almost 25 years. A phenomenal story of thriving and surviving. But for now, that is all the time that we have. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us and to all of the viewers of The Exam Room Live for asking such tremendous questions today. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.